We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 376 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Jay Hilton, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Patreon extraordinaire Mike Cribbins to discuss the very unpleasurable top of Barcelona's finances. But fear not, I think that this show is exactly what you've been looking for. It's an admittance of the issues and limitations with Barca's numbers and the morality of some of the ways that they're conducting business. But it's also a bit of a defense for those who are looking at the club and throwing stones in a class uh, in a glass house. Because, Mike, we have terrible, terrible timing. Not only is the financial report for last season still not out until next month. So I feel like we even pushed and rushed the show a bit because of the discourse and the arguments and, again, the truth being somewhere between the hyperbole we see on the internet and and letting the club off the hook for uh, what is very risky uh, business, we'll say. But as we're doing this and preparing for all this and getting ready for the discourse, of course, Jules Kunde is now official. He's They've come out with the videos. They've come out with the welcome. And at least I have to say for him, here's the, the silver lining is he's doing his medical in Barcelona, the city as opposed to coming to the U.S., and I can say whether he touched down in Newark to be with the team or LaGuardia or JFK, I think Jules Koundé is going to remain at Barcelona because he got to go to the Barcelona airport and didn't have to go and uh, fly into one of the New York area airports because I think he might just get right back on the plane. If, if you really fly into LaGuardia or JFK, you know that, hey, it's a wrap. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm getting right back on. <laughs> I'm heading back to Spain. Yeah, it sounds like he'll debut in the Gamper. I know you're going to talk about that next week with um... – with uh, some real experts, uh, but I'm, I'm as a fan, I'm super excited about Kunda. I think it's a fantastic signing. And thanks for the opportunity to be on again, Dan, and talk about uh, these financial issues. Uh, as you said, we don't have the we don't have the annual reports, so we're not going to have like crystallized sort of numbers. But there's so much misinformation and misunderstanding out there, uh, and a lot of hyperbole, like you said. So I, I this is a great opportunity for me to talk about these issues because you know how interested I am in them, mm-hmm. um, instead of just like yelling at my TV or whatever when the ESPN guys are screwing everything up. Right. I mean, that's really what the, the whole thing, uh, we're going to probably be really repetitive, especially me at times, because I'm not totally comfortable with all these numbers. I tried my best to to use my calculator. I counted on my fingers, counted on my toes. I think I have most of it figured out, but you're definitely going to be the guiding force here. And uh, there's two basically brains. There's two schools of thought here. It's the optics and the actual numbers. And because so many of us, I mean, again, me included, I'm a journalist, I'm not a financial expert. So 
I have to only understand this through the optics or through the different lenses of which this has to be understood. And I can do my best, but it, it just doesn't work for this journalism brain. And I, I think we start there with the why we're doing the show, the coverage of Bar Barcelona's financial issues. And there's a number of reasons for this, right? The, the reason why we're even having the show, whether this is an argument, whether it's a discussion, whether it's discourse. And I think it does begin with Laporta's cult of personality, that being more of a politician even than a businessman himself, that you know he represents a club that is structured the way Barcelona is structured, which is it's owned by the members and it's not owned by some, some big, big oligarch. And in the last 10 years, Inter and AC Milan, they received over 900 million euros from loans and share capital from owners while Chelsea and Man City received just under 800 million euros from loans and share capital from owners, Everton, Juve, Leicester City, even Arsenal, Atletico Madrid all received 170 million or more from their owners. Meanwhile, Barca, Bayern, Man United, Real Madrid, and Tottenham were all at zero. And I think for the discourse as well, we a I, I think again because Barcelona are trying to be owned by the members, they're held to that standard, and that's what people are criticizing. And part two of that is blaming everything on Bartomeu constantly. A, it's not current because he's no longer the president, so these decisions that are being made financially are, you know, we'll say despite him, but they're being made by a, a new regime. And it also doesn't continue to create clicks. It doesn't create continue a conversation. It doesn't continue an argument to constantly say Barcelona is taking great risks because of the financial issues that a doomed presidency from the past put them in. Uh, and, and again, it's about what is going to sell papers and what is going to create discourse. And, and that's how we're looking at this through the optics. And Laporta is, again, a perfect figurehead for that kind of, we'll say, optics of, hey, this guy is very brash and overconfident. And that's why he's making and taking big risks. Yeah. And sort of that that political aspect of Barcelona and the as fans, we have to go through this every few years, you know, with a with a transition from from one board to the next and one president to the next. And it always happens. You know, people forget everybody. The new president always says how bad the old president was, you know, unless there's unless there's continuity, you know, and 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 really exaggerates the, the bad hand they've been dealt. Right. And Laporta did that in spades. You know, when, when Laporta took over, not only did they not only did he say things were really bad, but they actually tried to make things look really bad. Um, for a couple different reasons, they loaded a lot of expenses, player impairment, and litigation uh, reserves. These are these are accounting entries that they entered into the books of 2020, 2021. According to Swiss Ramble, it was 161 million in player value impairments. I'll explain that in a sec. And 84 million in litigation reserves, and 26 million other one-time impairments. Together, that's 271 million of Barcelona's 555 million euro loss last year. So. And there's a few reasons to do that, right? One is there's a really good reason is under the, the financial restrictions that, that Barcelona and, and other La Liga teams uh, operate under, it was better to take all that loss in one year yeah. and deal with these restrictions, you know, this negative salario limite that we had, you know, for one year, rather than have that hit us year after year after year and really constrain the way uh, we could act in the transfer market for, for several years. The second is, you know, Laporta just wants to make the, the the club that he was handed by Bartomeu looked like it was in terrible financial distress. Not to say that it wasn't in, in some financial distress. It certainly was. But he wants that to look really, really bad so that everything he does from then on can make him look better and he can look like the hero. So, you know, that milieu or that context informs or misinforms in some ways the the, the conversation around the financial situation with the club because you know a lot of people in the media and a lot of fans even and just you know just people on the internet or whatever 
think things are way worse than they are. They think Barcelona has no money. They think Barcelona is going break, broke. They think Barcelona is on the edge of bankruptcy when it's when it's not. These are Barcelona took a huge hit with the with the pandemic, a bigger hit than anybody else in Europe because of our reliance on game day revenue. And uh, we were flying close to the sun. You know, Bartomeu in that that regime, and even before that, we we were very overextended in terms of what we were spending on the squad and just spending in general. Yeah, uh, and those two things came together and created this financial crisis. But it's not as bad as what people think. It's we still we still have a great ability to generate revenue, one of the best in in world football, and we have sufficient liquidity, which means we have the money to pay our debts, and we have access to credit. When when that's needed for cash flow or to bridge, you know, bridge periods that are that are more fallow, like yeah. you know, like we had this this past year. So yeah. and Mike, you got a little bit in the numbers there. So I just want to continue to kind of lay the groundwork on kind of what we're arguing in terms of the optics, and then we're going to break down you know the, the details of the numbers here. Because again, the only other reason why Barca's financial crisis has been such a massive story is, and you kind of alluded to that, is because of the La Liga controls. That's part of this argument. Why Barca, as you said, have plenty of revenue. They have access to plenty of credit. And if it weren't for those La Liga controls, again, which is due to Barcelona's drop and loss in revenue for a number of reasons in mismanagement of the club, coupled with the pandemic, you know, they would have just been able to borrow money just straight throughout the pandemic. And you even had said it, you wrote in our notes here that the, the EPL had the same financial, if they had the same financial controls as La Liga, there would be just constant discussions about 75% of EPL clubs at being at risk of not being able to register their signings either because of their drops in revenue and their overspending. And in, in Sierra A, it would be 100% of the clubs. And you didn't write it down here, but as I was looking at the Bordeaux situation with Koundé payments as well, I mean, start, start talking about Liga, you're talking about 200% of the clubs or, or <laughs> both clubs triple times, except for PSG, of course, because of, again, what they're getting from loans and credit from their ownership ownership of a nation state group. And then the, the final point here on the optics is about the, you know, we keep hearing this term, the family silver, and that is, or the family jewel, whatever way you want to say it. And that's how I always, I, I put the red flag and go, I'm not sure if that person has really done their research or is there just jumping onto the, the, this argument already, but, you know, we're going to get into numbers here, but is the soul of a club 25% of their TV rights and 49% of the merchandising arm of a club run by members and elected president. Is that really the family silver? Like, obviously, we're going to discuss from a Kool-Aid perspective, the risk of selling these assets now. But the term family jewels or family silver is, is a bit nonsensical and hyperbolic, as we keep saying. And also to the whole Spotify can't know or, you know, can't know thing. Maybe it's just the American me, but things still, I mean, that, that thing is still going to be called the can't know colloquially. And I don't mean to, to target them, but you know, I saw an Arsenal fan stirring the pot and his stadium's actual name is the Emirates Stadium. So, I mean, once again, hypocrisy from a, a lot of these, you know, let's say small accounts on, on Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you know, the, the hypocrisy is coming from inside the house, <laughs> you know, especially with the names of these stadiums um, and things like that. Well, it's not just a, it's not just a randos on the Internet, too. I was listening to an interview with Miguel Delaney, who's great, by the way, like love his yeah, work. Really great general. Yep. He had uh, he was comparing he was saying, you know. Barcelona is getting in bed with uh, venture capitalists, you know, and this is a terrible thing. And, and in the same interview, he's, he thought he, he held out Liverpool as a good example of good management. He thought Barcelona should, you know, undertake sort of an austerity program, rely on youth, you know, buy free, you know, get free transfers and not spend any money for a few years. 
and, and they can get back to glory, like sort of how Liverpool has. And I'm like, Liverpool is owned by a venture capital firm. <laughs> you know, Fenway Sports is what Fenway Sports Groups does. They, they yeah. invest equity in uh, in troubled assets in in in, in sports and and uh, try to make money off of that. You know, and and so um, there's sort of this double standard. You know, Barcelona, like you said, I mean, as a as a you know as a Catalan institution, as a social institution, and as a as a fan owned club, is held to this very different standard. You know, where if we, uh, you know, if we partner with Goldman Sachs or we borrow money from an investment bank like that, you know, suddenly, you know, we are betraying everything that it is to be Barcelona Football Club or we or we sell naming rights to the stadium, which, you know, everybody else in, in world football does. You know, somehow we have betrayed what it is to be a football club. And we're yeah. and we have to listen to these uh, these criticisms from fans of clubs who are who have sold 100 percent of their clubs to uh, oligarchs or, or, you know, state, uh, Petro states or American, uh, businessmen and, and venture capitalists. So it, it's, and that's it's, where, and that's where I think really I'm going to point this, yeah. this too, because I, I think there is with that, with that narrative, Mike, of, um, like a Barcelona's quote unquote necessity to suffer, I guess to say, where, why wasn't Barcelona against the mat longer? Why did that knock out financial punch? Because again, it all has to be paired together about the idea that they're potentially going bankrupt and they will cease to exist as was a joke by Rafael Bernstein. So with that kind of you know, narrative pushing against it, like I can tell you from personal experience that Barcelona did hit a lull period, that fans did tune out, that as I was reporting from live, from, from not live, but from Barcelona at the stadium, that there was less people going to the stadium week in and week out. And so there was a hit from the support and the club. And like, who knows what generation is now fans of Man City and PSG. You know, it's, it's again, this is just, antidotal but we have a, a new neighbors that had moved in a few months ago and they have four or five kids and all of them are always wearing psg stuff and i said hey name a player from psg and they said oh messi he's my favorite psg player and then i brought out my my jersey from the closet and i said i mean but messi is a barcelona player right i like i know you're only you're only seven seven six seven years old and you don't know this but like he's a barcelona player but i mean that's also speaking of the, the academy and bringing up food that's also the worst argument i keep seeing i think that's the worst one once they also bring up that argument then i kind of have to be done with it that this whole barca signing megastars and not accepting a slow rebuild but you know it was only one year barcelona's quote-unquote rebuild but they had to do some awful things in that rebuild like the part with Messi and the optics of Laporta, I mean, blow that all up, right? He lost institutional trust from a lot of Kool-Aids who criticized him for the hardest decision that almost any president has, has had to make in their time in charge of Barcelona. And he had to do it in a way that severely damaged the institutional trust and potentially the image of the club as well. When we talk about image and brand and stuff. So, I mean, last fall, I, I did a match review with Abde and Ferran Jukla and Luke de Young as the front three tried it, right? You know, they're fine players in their own right, as we're saying, but you know, they were up there at the top of that trident instead of Lionel Messi because he was basically sent packing out of the club. So to me, it sounds like other clubs fans want Barca just to stay down and, you know, get what they reap, what they sow, if you will, for the financial morality of the decisions they've made. And it's also not like signing Lewandowski and Rafinha makes the future of this club any less about Pedri and Ansu and Gabi. You know, Pedri and Ansu signed the renewals. And if anything, continuing their progress alongside stars that can take some weight off of them as teenagers could be a great thing in three years time when they are the figureheads and they are the main fact, the, the main figures of the club. And again, they'll also be 22 years old at that time. When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's Piquet and Puyol or 
Pique and Mascherano, or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Barcelona has always, uh, even in in even in the heyday heyday of Messi and and and, um, and Xavi and Iniesta and you know all that homegrown talent, has always uh, supplemented that homegrown talent with important important purchases on the transfer market. So, but I, I, I agree with you 100. percent I think there's a lot of Schadenfreude that uh, the English English fans in particular, um, maybe other fans in world football who don't like Barcelona are being denied now because they they wanted to see Barca suffer and they wanted to see you know, Barca in ruins. And then the, this summer comes along and they're like, wait, we don't get to see that. We don't get to have that. What's going on here? You know, I was listening to um, Caught Offside, the podcast with uh, it's JJ Devaney, Andrew Gunley. Great, great podcast. Anybody who uh, 
looking for a good podcast that covers primarily the Premier League, MLS, and the U.S. Men's National Team, you should give those guys a listen. So I don't mean to pick on them because I love them, but in one episode, in one little segment, they hit all the hyperbolic tropes about Barcelona. They said, Barcelona selling the family jewels, as you mentioned, mortgaging their future. Uh, they owe Frankie de Jong $17 million in back pay, which we'll get to. Uh, Barca's putting their head in the sand and saying, everything is fine, everything is fine, everything is fine. So hopefully we can dispel some of that hyperbole and frankly misunderstanding in our conversation today. And before we, before we get into real substance, I do want to say, I don't want anybody accusing me of being Pollyanna. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to sit here and say the situation is, is, all, is, is perfect and it's great. Years of overspending, mismanagement combined with hit from the pandemic, you know, led to a, a bad financial situation. There, there's no question about that. So I'm not saying everything's rosy, you know, nothing to see here, but we should deal in facts, you know, not tired narratives and uh, about Dramalona or whatever and, and misunderstandings and hyperbolic, you know, hand wringing. So with that, where do you want to start? I don't know. Well, I, I have bad news for you. Where you 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 gave that disclaimer more than 15 minutes into the show. So I, there, the people who've already who've already tuned out and have already started typing negative things about your name have already been said. So I, the, I guess the last, last thing before we get into, we're going to start, I think, with the La Liga salary limits. I think that's the place to start because that is getting the real issues that Barcelona have found themselves in. But before we do that, the last question here is, I keep seeing about these transfer fees and installments affecting the way that other clubs might do business with Barcelona, but outside of Juventus, of course, you know, because they are still in historic transfer debt themselves and wanting to extend the life of their players' contracts, is paying transfer fees in installments, you know, the issue that people say it is, as if it is this moral issue about Barcelona can't pay the future installment payments for a bunch of these different players. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned that the tweet, I think it was Raphael Honigstein, like he was joking people like Barcelona, you know, clubs are not unwilling to take uh, payment from Barcelona in installments because they fear the club won't be around in a few years. That was a joke. That's not happening. But, you know, in, in general, whether this is clubs in, in football, people in business, uh, all of us in our personal interactions, we would all rather get paid today than paid next week or next month or next year. Right. That's just a, that's just a truism. But in general, it doesn't, as a practical matter, it doesn't matter very much whether an agreement is to pay money up front or pay it in installments because teams on the receiving end of that, um, and this is whether, whether this is in, in, in football or, or in business, tend, if they need cash, if they need cash flow, they sell those accounts receivable to, to financial institutions. There are, there are companies that specialize in it's called factoring uh, companies. And if you look in in Barca's annual report, if anybody's interested in this kind of stuff, it's on page 264 of last year's annual annual report. You'll see all the receivables that, that we are owed, or I'm sorry, this is the uh, payments we owe to other clubs for past transfers. And there's a there's a little asterisk next to every, every club that has actually sold that payable to a factoring company. So they've already received the cash. They've received the cash up front, and we now owe a bank instead of owing, uh, owing that club. So it really doesn't matter that much. They'll, of course, have to sell that receivable at a slight discount, but that gets factored in when they accept the deal. You know, when they accept, you say, we'll pay you 20 million, you know, uh, over three years, 20 million a year. They say, okay, well, we're going to discount that 20 million from next year. And we're going to discount that 20 million from the year after. So it's really only worth, you know, it's really worth $56 million to us today, not 60. But we accept that deal anyway, because we'll, we'll accept the 56 and they turn around and sell the the, the future rights to, re, to receive the second two installments to a factoring company, you know, for 36 million instead of 40 million, and they get their cash up front anyway. And you'll see that that, that happens all the time. And like I said, it's, there's a chart on page 264 of last year's that shows 
just how many of those those payments have been have been sold to other uh, to other institutions, banks or whatnot. And this is something I'm very interested about. And by the way, just as an aside, seeing this year's annual report, I'm going to almost flip immediately to that page because mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, in last year's report, we owed 115 million Barca did to other to other clubs for prior transfers. These are these these installment payments. But I'm pretty sure that that's something we've we've completely restructured or consolidated through the new loan we got from Goldman Sachs uh, at 1.98% interest at 500 and some odd million dollar loan we got. Um, so I, I think most of this has probably gone away. This is part of the famous short-term debt that, that Barca had, and we've now restructured into longer-term debt with Goldman Sachs. So I think a lot of that is probably off the books at this point and is now rolled up into that long-term yeah. debt with Goldman. And the names on that list, uh, importantly, are Liverpool Coutinho, as in having already resold that debt and restructured that debt, Juventus for Pjanic, the Ajax, Valencia Neto, remember the Silicon and Neto, quote unquote, swap, I'm you know, winking there. And then even Gremio with, with Artemelo, and we know what happened to him down the road. So, okay, now getting into the La Liga stuff here, because again, this is why this is really in the news, because the only limitations or the only punishment, quote unquote, that Barca would get is the issues they might have in registering players, right? And so that La Liga money, the official La Liga number for 2020-2021, it was 165.6 minus the 2.5% that goes into the fund for relegated teams. So the payout in total was 161.5. And in addition to even that La Liga number was the cost cutting that Laporta is doing while restructuring the salaries. And, you know, I, I think, Mike, it'd be important to illustrate the ways in which we have brought, that being Barcelona, brought down both salaries and amortization costs to try to reach that salary limit. And, you know, this is basically that point here, like where I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to give you the green light. You go where you need to with this, because again, this is where we really need to get into the minutia of the short-term debt and that put the, uh, that put the limitations on the salary limits in the past two seasons. And then the, again, the ways that that's different from restructuring the long-term debt which affects revenue in the long run and affects the, you know, the risk of the long-term implications of the palanches that we're going to get to after we lay the groundwork here for the league of salary limits. Okay. It's tough to, it's tough to know where exactly to get into this. I mean, I don't want to go too for two reasons. One is I don't think it's constructive. And two, I don't know all the details of how exactly the salario limite is calculated by the league, but mm -hmm. it's nice to say that every team in La Liga has a, what's called the salario limite, a limit, a salary limit doesn't just include salary. It's a little bit of a misnomer. It's really all squad costs. Okay. And so the big ticket items on there are the salaries and bonuses that are paid to the players and the amortization of transfer fees, which is when you, when you pay a transfer fee, you can amortize it, quote unquote, um, over the length of the contract. So for example, we've just purchased Rafinha uh, let's say, I know there's a little bit of speed out the dollar amount or the money there, but let's say it's 60 million euros. Um, and he, he agreed to a five-year contract. So that's 60 divided by five years, that's $12.5 million in amortization every year. So next year, what the cost of Rafinha will be is his salary plus that 12.5 million, which is going to be around uh, 25, $26 million, putting those two things together. And all, when you add up all those costs, there are some other things like it actually includes the, the, the coaches and uh, 
you know, some other things, but those are rounding errors compared to what the players are paid and the amortization of the transfer fees. So it's essentially those two things add up to um, the squad costs. And that squad cost has to be below what La Liga says our salarial limite is, our limit of spending. And that's calculated based on things like revenue, our expenses, our level of debt, things like that. So famously, ours is currently negative, right? Barcelona's is currently negative. At 144 million, of course, that's the number we keep saying. Right, and, and, and that, what that means is if you're over that limit, then you're subject to spending limits. And it used to be four to one, it was eased with the, uh, they eased it with the pandemic and made it three to one, um, where you're allowed to spend one euro for every four euro, extra euros you bring in. So if you sell a player for 40 million euros, then you can spend 10. Now, if you sell, sell them for 40, you can sell, you can, you can spend 13.3 or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's now three to one. And we're, we're subject to that because obviously our payroll is over that negative number, right? It's more than, it's more than zero, right? It's a positive number. So, and that, and that, that's, and that's the restriction is you're limited to this three to one, three to one. By the way, there are some exceptions to that. If you sell a player that's worth more than 5% of your overall squad cost, and then you get, I think a two to one, it's a two to one spending limit instead of three to one, but um, that's not, that's not terribly important. The, 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 the main point is if you're over the limit, you have these restrictions. Doesn't mean you can't do business, but you're restricted in that way. That'll be recalculated in another three days. Uh, at the end of July, that gets recalculated and we'll have a new limit for next year. And that new limit, I hesitate to predict what it'll be, but I believe it'll be at least 300 million, maybe even 400 million, positive 400 million. And and what we're trying to do, and that's because of all the money we brought in from Sixth Street primarily, right? From the pulling that those famous Polancos, right? Which brought in $530 million in cash. And due to some uh, accounting hijinks, frankly, I don't know the details of and, and, and don't, so I don't know why that's the case. It's actually more like um, $700 million in, uh, in, in benefit on the, on the balance sheet which will be used to calculate our new, our new limit. So what I think is going to happen, and we'll know, you know maybe next week or in 10 days or something like that, is we will now be, our, our overall squad costs will be below the salario limite, which will allow us then to do one for one business in this transfer market. And this is the key to how we're going to register these players is because we will have brought in enough revenue through the Palancas and also through hopefully some sales coming up. We've done some selling, not much, but we, we need to do some more. And we will then be able to register the players because what we bring in will offset one-to-one -one with the, not the full cost of the transfer fees we just spent, but the, um, the, the amount that we need to amortize this year. And so we'll have a one-for-one -one set off and we'll be able to register all of our players. That's what I think is going to happen. That is certainly the plan that, that Alemani and company you know, have undertaken. Tabus yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, said Barcelona is on track to register their players. So I think everyone can kind of try to ignore the noise about, you know, you're not, we're not going to be able to register Lewandowski. We're not going to be able to register Kunde, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to hear a lot of that. We've been hearing that every window for the last two years, and we've yet to not be able to figure it out and register those players. And I think it's going to work out, work out again, um, one way or the other. So, yeah. I mean, to that point, one of the things that I've was harping on last week. I was going crazy about the Eric Garcia stuff. And another, I, I'm going to, I have to find creative ways to defend Eric Garcia, of course. But the one of the ones I finally got desperate enough to do was to argue that he is on 3 million euros a year 
gross as a rotational center back, right? As maybe the fourth or fifth, especially as Kunde has arrived, Eric Garcia might wind up being fourth or fifth on that depth chart. uh, If that, right now, he might even be sixth at this point. So he gets 3 million gross per year. Christensen is on 10 million euros and, and in his place. Again, he also came on a free transfer. So they didn't pay a transfer fee. Get him on 10 million euros gross. Meanwhile, Langley leaves with his 12 million euros gross to be paid by Tottenham. But, you know, even you, you even wrote this, Mike, here in our notes before his restructuring, TT was on 14 million on an extended contract that has now been reduced largely that gross amount. And then considering Memphis on 10.4, Aubameyang on 11.4, you know, it may feel like, again, that's over 10 or that's worrisome. But again, as you wrote, Griezmann was 37.5. Coutinho was at 22 and they've completely redid even Dembele is I think the most stark one that for all of what the issues with Dembele was, which is that this kid is paid way too much to sit on the sidelines, even, you know, not that those two goals the other day against Juventus too much of anything, but with his renewal, 40% of his wage wages have been reduced. Plus all the amortization have come off the books. And so you've gone from 50 million euros of salary and amortization to under 14 million euros gross for Dembele, right? So it's like, it's what, it's it's one, you know, I'm rounding here, but it's one fourth of what he used to be and he's the same player, right? So like you're in theory, you're getting the best version of Dembele for one fourth of the price by getting that renewal. And we don't have to go into how his agent kind of helped make that happen by by making some mistakes on the transfer market himself, but lessons to be learned, but Barcelona certainly have got, I mean, now, Alemani even more so looks like an absolute genius for what happened with Dembele. And I think that's kind of what Tebas is getting at. But when he says that Barcelona is on track, right? PK restructured the, and I think when you go down to the worries of, you go down to the concerns and and maybe Mike, you can speak to these of Busquets and Alba still after any deferred payments or anything like that are still way beyond everybody else in terms of what they're going to make this season in this, as far as, as far as salary and gross salary, even with deferred payments, PK has, he was honest in saying that he, that deal has been restructured for anything has been reported. And then, you know, even the Pianist loan, he restructured his stuff. Pianist did for the club is what I've heard, even though again, we'll have to wait for the end report to see what that number is. That one hasn't been totally brought through. And then we're going to do Frankie later. So I don't want to do him now, but his number rising as far as wages and that gross number that continues to be the issue. So if you see the club as one that has really done its due diligence to, to honestly work hard, even though they brought in new players to work hard, to create an entirely new wage structure and put those numbers in a way that Barcelona can pay those players. And, you know, again, kind of make sure they don't put themselves in trouble in the next few seasons based on a new wage structure. I mean, that's, that was the most important thing they needed to do. And it seems like they are on the right track and they are making a lot of good decisions in that category. Yeah, I totally agree. By the way, all these numbers are from capology.com, mm-hmm. which I, I've always, I always think, I know you've mentioned before too. I think they're the best source on the internet for, for, uh, for this type of information. Yeah, th- this is this is one of the things that really chafes at me when I hear that you know the the Sixth Street deal, which we'll talk about, gets all the attention, and and the spending this summer gets all this attention. So um, people say, oh, you know, it's all short termism. You know, everybody, you know, Barcelona is just completely gambling. You know, um, they're not doing, you know, they're not paying any. You know, the the bill is going to come due in a in a couple of years, um, but it's not it's not true. I think th- this board is being a little unfairly maligned in that way because. They have done so much to um, to really work on that that medium long term um, stability of the club and, and, a, and a salary structure and a, 
um, an overall squad cost structure that includes transfer fees that is sustainable and is much more reasonable than it was before. They've done it in a number of ways. You've mentioned about, you've mentioned some of the, some of the good examples and yeah, you know, I, I, I like Eric. Um, I think he's a good, good player to have on Barcelona. I know people disagree about that, but yeah, at 3 million gross, 1.5 million net and no amortization cost because he came on a free transfer. I mean, the guy is, you know, in comparison to, to players we've had in the past, uh, going to be one of the cheapest, uh, cheapest members of the squad, you know, it'll be you know, somewhere 23, 24, 25 on the squad in terms of his, his contribution to that squad cost. And so it's a little hard to, to criticize that he's not, he's not worth, you know, he's not, he's not worth his price, you know, or he's not worth his value. But so I think they've done a number of different things that we should just tick off real quick. First is opportunistic free transfers, Memphis, Aubameyang, Christensen, Kessie, and Eric all free transfers. Can you remember another time when, when Barcelona got five or six free transfers like that, you know, that have contributed at the level that they've contributed at? Well, no, I think the free transfer market has kind of become in vogue, if you will, in, in, in recent seasons, especially post pandemic. Absolutely true that it's become, it's become uh, sort of a more favorable option for, for players to let their contracts run down. It's very risky too. You know, I, I think somebody's going to get get nabbed by that one. They're going to they're going to suffer very serious injury in the last year of their contract, mm-hmm. um, and I think it might the pendulum might swing back after that when they when players realize the risk they're running like that. But but you're right. For the time being, it seems like uh, players are much more willing to run that risk. But I think Barcelona has done as well as anyone in in that free market, that free transfer market, and getting and getting good players. Second thing is we've we've extended the young. The young stars, Ansu Araujo, Pedri. I think God is going to fall into that as soon as he turns 18. The, the club sort of um, suggested they're just waiting till he turns 18 so he can sign that longer contract. Yep. Um, we've re-signed all four of those guys within a wage structure. You know that 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 fits right. We they all they're all they're all been signed for between I think six and and I think uh, Ansu is just under 14 million. Those are gross numbers. Yeah, um, almost identical to the MLA. Yep. Yeah. So we didn't get. You know, we didn't get super desperate, uh, right? And be like, oh my God, we gotta, we gotta, uh, we gotta keep on to, you know, no matter what the cost, and throw twenty million dollars, twenty million euros at them or whatever. So, and and of course, those are those are very cheap um, players from an amortization standpoint. Gavian, Gavian Ansu, uh, up through the system, Araujo and Pedri purchased, you know, very cheaply on the on the market. So, those are obviously great. I mean, we all love them too. Just putting the finances aside, we love them as players and we're all really excited about them being in our club for the next decade. But from a financial standpoint, I mean, it's just, an, it's, it's, it's an incredible thing that we have them and we have them for all of them for four or five years, at least on these very reasonable wages. Then the new transfer purchases, you know, we got Kessie, Lewandowski, Ferran, Rafinha, all brought in on lower wages than they were making than when they were making elsewhere. So, and these are guys that we would have paid a lot more a few years ago, you know, we would have not been paying Lewandowski 9 million net, you know, he's, he's going to be one of the highest paid players in the, in the squad this year, which he should be um, given who he is and, and what he's accomplished and, and what he brings to the team, I think, but he's not, you know, we're, we're paying Lewandowski 18.7 net where we were paying Griezmann 37.5, I mean, gross 37.5 gross. You know, this is the, you know, we, we gave uh, Coutinho 22 million gross, you know, so we're bringing in that caliber of player. We're doing it. We're doing it at a more sustainable level. And then you mentioned Dembele, which is you know, which is a 
uh, an important case of reducing his wages by 40%. Of course, there's no amortization costs on him now. That's going to bring the overall squad cost down by quite a bit. And then the last thing they're doing, and I, and I think this, this is probably the most difficult thing to do, and I think they're doing a pretty good job of it, and they need to do a lot of it between now and the end of this window, is finding solutions for the most overpaid players on the, on the squad. We've moved out Coutinho, finally, the loan last summer, the, uh, the, the, the permanent exit this year, the Pianic loan this year. By the way, on Pianic, we will find out, I think, when we see the annual report. I think he only reduced, he agreed to reduce his wages for the year to facilitate the year-long loan. I think he's still back on 15.6 or whatever it is this year, but he's shown himself willing to do that. I think, I think he's probably going to do that. Pianic is a guy who's shown he wants to play more than anything, uh, and I, I really respect him for that. There'll be some solution. Capology still has him at 15.6 for this year, and he would be the uh, fifth most expensive player on the squad right now at that. But you know, finding a solution for him, the MTD reduction, restructuring, maybe we can get him out this summer, who knows, PK restructuring. Maybe a Frankie exit. You know, Frankie's one of the most expensive players on the squad now, too. I, I just, this does not, this is not short-term thinking. All of this stuff is a more medium, long-term process of making the squad less expensive, less bloated, more egalitarian, younger, more homegrown, and at the same time, more talented. You mentioned Busquets and Alba. They're the illustration that this is a multi-window process, right? This can't all yeah. happen all at once. Busquets, his contract is up next summer. I, there's lots of talk of him leaving and going into Miami or whatever. I think one way or the other, he'll either be gone or he'll get renewed on a much lower salary. Alba's still got two years left, and I just don't—I don't think he's going anywhere. <laughs> I just think he's going to play out his contract personally. Yeah. But, um, so it's going to take another couple years before those those really highly paid and, and some would argue overpaid and given today's squad structure are sort of filtered out of, you know, out of the team. And that includes Pianic, who's on his contract runs a couple of years, you know, even PK with the restructuring, it, you know, there's going to be a lot of money come due to him at the end of his contract, which is in two years. You know, maybe he'll accelerate that and retire next summer, depending on how his knees are. But it's just going to, it's going to take a couple more, yeah. a couple of cycles, you know, to, to completely fix this. But I think that since, since Alemani, Laporta and company have come in, I think they've done an incredible job bringing that overall wage bill down a lot. And I could just tell you from right now at this moment, uh, the overall uh, capology, the salary, not this doesn't count, count amortizations, but the salary, total salary for the squad is 268 million, 280,000, so 268 million in 2020, in 2020, 2021, the last full season before the pandemic, or actually it was even that, even after the beginning of the pandemic, but two years ago, it was 352 million. So that's down already 24%. That's the salaries. And I think it's going to go down even more by the end of this window, you know, especially if we sell Frankie, you, you move Pianic on, you make some other, you make some other sales or loans. This is, this is a total restructuring and reorganization of the squad for the long term. Yeah. And speaking of long term or short term, let's do the palancas or the levers. I know people are pretty probably getting a bit tired already. But I mean, one of the reasons that Barca is getting criticized so much is because of, you know, feeling like, as you said, when people, I, I, the, the word term lever in English is tough because you are thinking of a casino. 
And I think that imagery goes much, much farther than what's actually happening with, we'll say, the Polanco that delivers. And it's beca- it became this buzz. It became this hyperbolic, like when in the Lord of the Rings series, when Gandalf comes over the mountain with the white horse after he had died. And you, know, <laughs> you get the sense that that's what Laporta is trying to do here with this battle of, of finances here. So, you know, the, the first thing to start with is that not all Polanco's money is going to the transfers. It was used, uh, some of it is used to pay off the short-term debt versus long-term debt. And we already did, we've already spoken about that through the lens of the legal limits, right? The three to one rule, the one to one rule, we've already done a bit of that. And it's also, I would say too, with this Palanca stuff, it's all about relying on the return of other revenue moving forward, uh, as we kind of discussed. So yes, tied to winning to a point, right? But that's not the in total risk, just winning or winning trophies, right? Because a trophy and um, whether it's the Champions League money or, or the Liga trophy, like you only get so much actual revenue, like, like a big fat check. It's only so much. It's usually a, a small amount. But, you know, Barca as a global brand, that's where they're banking on that revenue. Match day revenue was $126 million in 2019-2020, then down $110 million to just $26 million in 2020-21 due to the closing of a 99,000-seat stadium one that will be expanding in size in the next few seasons as well. So they also suffered the largest year-on decrease in Europe in terms of commercial revenue as well. And a lot goes into that, but because we don't, we can't really pinpoint and say, oh, they lost this much in this category, this much in this category in terms of commercial revenue, there's kind of no nuanced way to discuss that, right? It's just is enveloping, magnanimous, who knows what that is. But Barcelona lost revenue. And they also, prior to, have the ability to make revenue. They do not have the golden goose, the cash cow that was messy anymore, but they have a ton of stars in a modern era. And no matter what, like this is the big thing about Barcelona and maybe Real Madrid learned that lesson with Ronaldo earlier, but you know, the image rights of Messi and everything that's involved with selling, they don't just, he owns his own image rights, by the way. Like the players do generally own their image rights. And then some of the clubs do have access to some of that. It trickles down to them. The same thing we talk about with jerseys, where jerseys are usually owned by the companies, that being uh, for Barcelona, Nike, uh, whoever it may be, or Pumas or Adidas for, uh, for other clubs. And so uh, clubs get a portion of that. So that's not even the revenue we're speaking about. But uh, again, with a lot of different ways that Barcelona can sell their Im- their image and their brand to different partners in different ways for different spot- sponsorships that, again, are so minuscule we don't see, but they all add up to being a huge number. But as you said before, too, Mike, that, that match day revenue is what stands out the most. And I mean, there are ways that the club is already being creative. And you could say they're selling out with the success of the Femini by putting them in the Camp No twice and having 90,000 plus people on both of those occasions. But simple things like that, like even if something is done, we'll say in desperation, doesn't necessarily mean that it was done totally in bad faith, right? It's like, and that's where the morality of certain things like that, certain decisions like that, where Barcelona are trying to make money in those ways. Barca TV Plus, of course, is another one of those ways that they've been trying to, to push and push and push and push. And obviously opening up the international socios thing, it's another one of those ways where well, why didn't they do this when they were flush with cash at the time? Well, that's because they didn't need to. And now that they need to, are they really doing it for the international fans? Again, it's the efficacy of, of things like that. But going towards how uh, the, 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 the upfront loans, right? Let's do this Sixth Street deal thing here, Mike. The okay. details of the Sixth Street deal, how to analyze it. You know, We want to correct some misinformation. And I think what I keep seeing is missed here is very little comparison to that CVC La Liga deal, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was before it seemed to be, Barcelona and Real Madrid in the Super League versus the CVC deal. But now it seems like Barcelona 
It's Barcelona's Sixth Street deal versus that CBC deal. So to remind everybody that the Sixth Street deal, 10% of the legal rights for the next 25 years for 207.5 million euros, then an additional 15% additional rights for a deal worth around 320 million euros. So over 25 years, Sixth Street will make 1 billion euros on an investment of 527.5 million. And again, this is just La Liga we're talking about. 25% of just the La Liga rights, not the Champions League, not the Copa del Rey, not the Supercopa, only La Liga. And also, again, a reminder too, that European TV money even dropped from 118 million to 69 million since 2019. Uh, Yet still, it was at 2019 at its apex. That was substantially higher than it was in 2018 and prior seasons, which was all sub 60. So we also have to take into effect uh, and take into account that the European TV money, there's a lot of oscillation in where that is right now. And again, this whole idea of the Super League is kind of hanging over all of what that bottom line number is. It's not just about joining the Super League. It's what kind of TV rights money would come in from a potential Super League. Okay, so I crunched some numbers on this, so I'm going to get into some numbers here. Just stop me, stop me anytime you, <laughs> or, or need need me to explain anything a little further. So first, some context. Barca sold, as you just mentioned, 25% of its illegal TV rights, not European rights, not not Supercopa, not anything else, but La Liga TV rights. That's been the the La Liga share of revenue for Barca has been pretty consistent, and it it um, it fluctuates some. I, I think you know it's half is an equal share to all the teams. Uh, you know, half the money that Liga, Liga, Liga gets from their TV goes to all the teams equally. A quarter is based on league finish, and a quarter is based on other factors, commercial contribution, they call it, how many it has to do with TV ratings and tickets sold and things like that. We, Barca generally does, does very well in that. Um, whether we win or come in second or third, it, it's going to vary. It's going to vary some, but not. it hasn't varied a tremendous amount in the last uh, five years. So, and, and it's right around 160, 165. This last, this last year, I think our, our portion was 161.5. So a quarter of that, what we sold was 40 million a year. That's 4%, 4% of pre-pandemic uh, income. The last, the last year before the pandemic, revenue was 990 million. It's gone down, obviously, since the pandemic, but we're hoping we'd get back to that. So we're talking about selling about 4% of future revenue, not you know, not betting the farm, you know, not, not, not selling the, the, the heart of the club. If you want a comparison, earlier this year, for some reason, because a narrative doesn't get as much attention, Real Madrid sold 30% of its future stadium revenue, uh, not counting season ticket sales, to Sixth Street for 360 million. In the last, I looked at the uh, the Real Madrid annual report from last year, stadium revenue minus ticket sales and fees was 119.5 million, or 16% of Real Madrid's total revenue. In the last, that was the last full year before the pandemic, actually, not last year, it was 2018, 2019. So they sold 30% of that, which is about 35.8 million or 4.7% of total revenue. So they have actually sold more on a percentage basis of their future revenue, quote unquote, than we have. But of course, of course, they think that's not the end of the analysis, right? They think the deal is going to be good because they think Sixth Street is going to help them grow that revenue. We also think it's a good deal because we think the money we brought in from Sixth Street is going to allow us to invest, which is primarily invest in the team to increase revenue in the future. It's also been widely reported, and I think it's true, although we don't know the details, is that there's some sort of cap on how much we, you know, how much of the TV rights Sixth Street would get um, in the future, or that we have some sort of buyback clause. So if in five years La Liga renegotiates, you know, the ESPN deal or the domestic deal or, or whatever, and TV rights go way up, I think we have some protection on that, um, although we don't know the details of that. 
but it, it has been widely reported that that BARSA does have um, some protection in that in if that were to happen. So, and as you mentioned, BARSA is using this revenue. We got $530 million from Sixth Street. We're not spending $530 million on new transfers. We're using most of that money to shore up the balance sheet. That means reducing debt, reducing liabilities, increasing assets, so that when the new calculation happens this weekend or at the end of this week on our new our new salary limit, that we will be out from under the three to one rule and we'll be subject to the same rules as everybody else. So I, I noticed too that uh, you know some people have pointed this out on uh, online that we have we got Rafinha now Kunde and Lewandowski plus Kessie and Christensen for all about the same amount of money we spent on Coutinho a few years ago. So I don't agree with people who say Barca is repeating the mistakes of the past, um, you know, and just throwing this money away or just spending like a drunken sailor or whatever euphemism you want to use. I think they're they're doing it quite responsibly. And again, the vast majority of that money is being used to reduce our debt, increase our assets and shore up our balance sheet. Uh, so okay, so that, the, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Liga TV rights, again, it's 25% for Barcelona with a individual deal with Sixth Street for 25 years, their other option, there was, there was no zero option here. Like they had to, they had to sell this in some way. The other option was to go with La Liga and that was 8.2% over 50 years for that CVC deal. And even in a quick research of both those companies, if you're going to say which of is the, we'll say riskier investment, the company Sixth Street, which again, just an investment firm, their dealings in the sporting world have been much more beneficial to the companies that have worked with them, including Real Madrid, than what we have seen from CBC, which we talked about months and months ago when they worked with F1. And so to compare the two, where would I rather, it's kind of like one of those things where it doesn't matter where you put your Roth IRA or traditional IRA. I mean, not really, but also maybe it does, right? Like going all the way back to the financial crisis. Like if you were one of those people that put your money in Lehman Brothers, now you're the one in trouble as opposed to, uh, I, I mean, obviously now with the with the financial crisis happening, the global financial crisis, the fiduciary responsibilities, you know, it's there is too big to fail now, right? So many things are too big to fail. But that, beside the point is, yeah, I mean, the efficacy of these different companies that they're working with, a reminder too, that uh, the the Sixth Street deal was, we'll say Barcelona's better deal or the, or the deal that they felt more comfortable with to be better for them. Um, okay, anything else left on Sixth Street before we move over to Bell, uh, BLM? Yeah, right on that. Right on that point, I just wanted to mention. So, when you the Sixth Street deal, five hundred thirty million dollars today, um, in exchange for essentially forty forty million dollars a year for twenty five years, that when you calculate the 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 interest rate or what's called a discount rate on that deal, it's about five point nine percent. Okay, so in other words, we need to make five point nine percent on that five hundred thirty million to make that deal break even in the future. We obviously think we're going to do that by investing in the squad and increasing all our other, you know, our, our revenue streams by having a better product, increase attendance, increase prize money in La Liga in Europe, more commercial revenue by you know selling jerseys and whatnot, better sponsorship deals, a greater share of domestic and Champions League TV money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is I did the same exact thing for the CBC deal under which we would have gotten 270 million for selling 50, uh, 10% of TV rights for 50 years. And it comes out to almost exactly the same discount rate, about 5.9%. And, and by the way, this is very much an oversimplification because it depends on rates of compounding and when the money's paid and everything. But this is, this is an approximation. They're approximately the same. So in financial terms, they're approximately the same. I think we made the right choice that Sixth Street is the better deal for a number of reasons. One is the 
what you said, I think Sixth Street's a better partner than CBC. It's a shorter term deal. I think in general, the shorter, the better for us because we don't know what's going to happen in the, in the distant future. Third, we have this, buy, this buyback clause or some sort of downside protection. And fourth, this leaves the door open to the Super League. And no matter what you think about the Super League, having that door open rather than closed is, is, is still better for Barcelona. Financially, yep. Okay. Now, a little. I think we can actually go pretty quick on BLM, Spotify, and even the Goldman Sachs loan. So first for Spotify, it was 70 million euros of sponsorship for kit, training kit, I mean, shirt and stadium naming rights. We don't need to go into that. That's just 70 million euros up front. I mean, it's less than what it was for Rakuten uh, or even Beko recently. But again, that also to do with the, a lot of clubs dealt with the lower not only stadium rights, but shirt jersey rights, where it just that, that was the number. It's gone down because of the pandemic and the there's less negotiating power for that kind of marketing. Speaking of marketing, let's do now BLM. And that is the Barcelona Studios deal, that being Barcelona licensing and mar- merchandising for those who aren't <laughs> who've been under rock for a little bit of time. So the potential BLM or Barcelona Studios deal that Barcelona still has not found the right deal for. It would be different from the TV rights deal and how, especially in how it could have a lot of upside that you and I have been discussing. I mean, people really looking at this like, okay, so Barcelona is generating 200 to 300 million upfront. And once again, Barcelona is making, taking the big risk that getting that 200 to 300 million upfront for 49% of BLM, it's also digital initiatives as well. So uh, media partnerships, lucrative appearances, whatever. I mean, even the Twitch channel falls under that category. But what we're talking about here is the quote unquote risk of selling 49% of BLM is assuming lower revenue in the future. And that, again, that is why people are hand-wringing the BLM deal, because you feel like you cannot make that sale in the future. By selling 49% now means it cannot happen later, and you're assuming lower revenue. But again, you and I have been speaking this in a pretty in a pretty positive light, and you have the numbers to back that up. Yeah. I mean, yes, you're selling the potential future revenue, but you're also, hopefully, you're partnering you're getting something for that. You're getting money up front, number one. And number two, you're partnering, hopefully, with, with someone that has the expertise that you don't have to grow that revenue substantially in the future to even make up for the, the, the portion of the revenue that you've lost through the sale. And the bottom line on this, and by the way, for people that don't know, BLM is a, is a subsidiary of, of the club um, that was created only in 2018. And it's the heart of the club, Mike. It's the heart of the club. It's, it, it, does <laughs> not, it does not make much money, Dan. Um, Barca, it, here's, the, here's the sad truth about Barca um, licensing and merchandising. They're terrible at it. They're absolutely terrible at it. You and I are sitting here in the, in the U.S. We cannot get online today and buy something from the Barcelona store in, in the largest market on this planet, the United yeah, States. One of those $18.99 collar shirts. I mean, if we have any Spanish listeners, listen, I'm, I'm willing to hit you up. <laughs> and uh, find out some kind of international mailing because yeah, I've wanted those for years. Yeah, it's crazy. So the revenue breakdown, by the way, and again, page two seventy two of the twenty 2020, twenty 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 one report. If you want to see it, BLM was responsible for eight percent of club revenue in twenty the year ended twenty twenty. That's forty four million and four percent in the year ended twenty twenty one. Highly affected by the pandemic, of course. That's why revenue is down. That uh, that's revenue only. If you look at page two seventy six, BLM's profit was two hundred and sixty three thousand euros, 263,000 euros in uh, the year ended 620 and, and was lost. It generated a loss of 8 million euros for the year ended 2021. So this isn't some cash cow. It is a struggling 
part of the business that Barca does not do well. So partnering with a, you know, partnering with a company or companies by selling 25 or 49 percent or whatever, there's some rumors that we might sell 25 percent only. That you know, partnering with someone with actual expertise in worldwide licensing and merchandising could actually substantially grow revenue and profit for the for the club in the future, as well as giving us that cash infusion now. So, you know, if the valuation of 49% of BLM was reported to be like 200 million or $300 million, if that's anywhere near close, I think it would be a great, a great deal for Barca. Barca, you know, is run by a bunch of oligarchical businessmen in Catalonia. That's, that's the truth. And they're not necessarily good at some of the parts of the business that Barca uh, needs to be good at to be a competitive um, club in the modern football world, global in the global market. So partnering through, you know, sale of things like BLM or Barca Studios is kind of kind of the same thing, a much smaller, uh, much smaller thing, a much smaller transaction that would be, but, you know, would be you know, with someone who's like an expert content creator. Uh, I think that those would be, those could be very good moves for the club and is not, you know, to me is not parceling up the club and, and selling it off to various interests or selling the heart of the club or anything like that. I think that's all hyperbole that really misunderstands the nature of, of, of that part of the business. All right. So, all right, two more things here. Fortunately, I don't think we're going to have time to talk too much about the transfer window and all that stuff. But the two last things we have to do is the Goldman Sachs thing, because again, I think that is, we'll say probably the, the least researched you know, uh, slander that's being thrown. I mean, calling Barcelona Goldman Sachs FC. It was a deal worth for 10 years worth 595 million euros at 1.98% to replace short-term debt. Prior to that, Barcelona had to pay 596 million euros within the next 12 months when they made that deal. Another major risk here with the, and this is what the members had to vote on as well, was that SPI Barca project remodeling the stadium will require another additional loan of 1.5 billion from Goldman Sachs. And I think, Mike, those numbers are so big that you can't, uh, that it's it's impossible to conceptualize that, you know, it just feels like somebody else owns Barcelona and that is, that's it. Like that's where Barcelona is getting criticized for that. They feel like those numbers are so big that Barcelona will forever be beholden to this other organization, which yes, just happens to be Goldman Sachs, a very well-known venture capital. You know, Here's the bottom line. When you have a billion dollar revenue global uh, company, um, you need to borrow money to you, you borrow money to maximize your um, your ability to invest in that company. And guess who has hundreds of millions of dollars to, to loan investment banks. Um, so you're going to be you're going to be dealing with someone like Goldman Sachs. If it's not Goldman Sachs, it's going to be someone else. And every every major football team in Europe you know, has a significant line of credit or a commercial loan. Yep. And those commercial loans and, and, and revolvers are with uh, big banks. That's just the bottom line. And, and we're no more uh, in hock to Goldman Sachs than any of those other companies are in hock to their, to their lenders. Um, so that's pretty easy to dispose of. I know we're out of time. I want to just leave, leave everybody with one thought on this. I'm not saying that that um, there is no risk here to what to the to the course of action that Laporta and Alemani have taken, but what I, what I'm saying is there's a lot of misinformation about um, the gamble that they have taken, and I think we should just we should assess if, if people want to have an opinion about uh, about that gamble. Everybody sh everybody should have their opinion. They can think it's a bad idea. They can think it's a good idea, but they they should they should have that opinion based on on good information. And the second thing is. This wasn't a choice. They weren't faced with a choice post-pandemic and post the Bartomeu era of, of taking this, this gamble 
and, and, and or taking some really safe course of action. The other option was to not pull these levers, right? Not do the deal with Sixth Street. They would have had to sell players to meet, uh, to balance the books by June 30th. Um, they would have had to do something there. But the, the, the alternative was to weaken the squad, to weaken the squad significantly and be sort of non-competitive or not nearly as competitive yeah. and not have as good a product on the field for several years. And, and Mike, let me, let me jump in real quick yeah. about the players that we'd have to sell. Like we're not talking about the players that you want out of the club. We're talking about Ansu and Pedri. So the very same people that are criticizing Barca for not doing what they needed to do and, and, and rebuild and, and sell off through time. No, they would have had to sell the actual assets that is being Ansu and Araujo and Pedri. They would have had to blow up their future for the present just to survive. That's what they would have had to do if they did not take the risk of short-term debt repayment. I think that's absolutely uh, the, the most likely course they would have had to take. And I just want to say in, in this modern football era, and you were talking about fickle fans, your neighbors with the PSG jerseys or whatever. Oh, like, they're, they're eight years old. So. Yeah, we're going to pick on those. We're going to try to work on them for a while. No, but it's like, it's it's not just it's not just them. I think it's, you know, a lot of fans today, especially especially younger folks, they go with players, you know, they're they're fans of players or they're, they they can very easily switch allegiances, you know, and, and with, with Barcelona in particular, unlike unlike a club like PSG or the EPL clubs, who have a significant amount of their revenue is fixed in the, in, in the, uh, in the EPL, their, their um, TV contract, their TV rights um, per club is more than twice as much of what La Liga's is. And, and that, that money is, is going to be there for them year in and year out, whether they, whether they suck or not, to be perfectly frank, if Barcelona sucks, or we're just not, not nearly as good as the fans want us to be tourists don't, see the Camp Nou and the museum as a, as a, as important of a stop when they come to visit um, Barcelona, you know, the socios stop going fans. There's just like the, the Camp Nou is half full or 40,000 or 45,000 instead of 80 or 90 on a regular basis. We don't advance as far in the champions league. God forbid, we don't actually qualify for the champions league, even one year. This, this would for, to me create a very serious risk of a spiral where revenue goes down. You need to sell. That causes revenue to go down and you need to sell. And it's very hard to get out of that, that spiral. So th the people are out there who are saying like Barcelona just shouldn't have done this, should have just relied on youth and their academy and free transfers as if free transfers would want to come to a team in that situation who aren't even, you know, trying to you know, compete in the Champions League. And, and that's a risk. That, that, that was a very risky course of action. So they had two choices, risky course of action, where, you know, through austerity and sort of, you know, a lesser performance on the field, a lesser product on the field, or the risk they've taken, which is to improve the squad, reduce costs, but, but really try to remain competitive and increase revenue by remaining the brand, the global brand and the, and the competitive, exciting football team on the field that Barcelona is known to be. Those were the two choices, not risk versus safe course of action, two risks. I, for one, as both a fan and uh, and a follower of these sort of financial issues, I'm very happy they 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 took the path that they took. Yeah, and then the final thing, I we, I can't we can't spend too much time on it, but the Frank and Young situation, uh, very similar to the Messi situation. There are these quote unquote necessary evils, and we have to be uncomfortable with the way that the club is conducting those negotiations, even if they're we'll say in the right for their their verdict or the thing that they're trying to do even though they're trying to, we'll say, do the right thing for the club, for the fans, for the supporters, 
they are going about it in a way that makes us uncomfortable, right? And that is like the way, that's really the only, let's say, you know, we'll say negative re- reality that we have to face. And the same thing with me, where it's like, I have no defense of the way that the club is uh, trying to negotiate with, with Frankie de Young to get him out of the club because they don't really have too much leverage here because he already took, uh, what is it? He took a negotiated contract for this year and last year and added the years on the end of it and increased wages, which will be a problem later, which is why the club is trying to minimize that and get rid of that now and not have to deal with those, those, those deferred wages, if you will, that he already agreed to because, and that's, and that puts Frankie in the power position here in this negotiation. And so what does the club have to do other than to try to kind of make him feel unwelcome or make him uncomfortable or make it a, a situation where he feels like he's no longer a Barcelona player and he sees and views himself in a different Jersey. And he kind of gets that in his head and, and, and kind of goes along with that move. And so the club is doing it in an unsatisfactory way in terms of, you know, PR and things like that. And again, I really want a Frankie Young to succeed and do well at FC Barcelona. I've explained the sporting parts of it here on the podcast. So I'm not going to do that a hundred other times, but I will say again, from a financial perspective, I mean, it's like in any negotiation, like I've learned a long time through my life that, especially here in the United States, and I don't want to give too much away about my, my views about what we'll say, the way money changes hands here in the country that we live in, Mike. But I, I will say that if you accept your fate in certain ways, but financially, there is always a bigger fish and a bigger dog who's, who's ready to eat. And I have watched people I love and people in my life. And I've done it. I did it myself 10 years ago when I was coming up in a broadcasting industry that if you don't try to reach for what you want, people are going to pay you what they think you deserve instead of what you deserve. And you're going to be put in a a really difficult spot for, or or believe that you can't negotiate anything. So it's always fair for the player to take what's theirs. You know, I'm all for position for players to have positions of power. And as far as the club goes, yeah, the club is, as we talked about for a million reasons, they're trying to reset their wage structure and they still have albatrosses that they did not create. You know, I think I would really be a lot more critical even of Laporta and Alemani and, and you stay if they were the ones who made the deal with the young, but they didn't, they did not make that deal with the young. And so they're cleaning up somebody else's mess by getting their hands dirty and they've got to yeah. be that, that bad parent. Yeah. I, I find the way they approach that to be very unsavory. And it's one of the worst, worst parts of being a fan of Barcelona is the way that especially the club uses the press to disparage players, you know, yeah. trying to drive a player out of the club. I'd prefer a more honest approach where the club goes to the player and the agent and says, here's the deal. Here's the situation. We really don't see you fitting into our new wage structure and sportingly, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm totally naive to think that would actually work, but I, I mean, they already did that. Right. I mean, we, maybe they did. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. But I do want to clarify one thing. Barcelona don't owe Frankie anything in terms of finance. They owe him, you know, they owe him courtesy and and respectful dealings, in my opinion, but they don't owe him any money. He renegotiated at the behest of the club, but he he agreed to it with the benefit of counsel and financial advisors. You know, these are sophisticated actors. He, He added on years to the end of his contract and renegotiated his contract. So he got something for what he gave up and they do not owe him anything. But what he has is a contract and he can say no. He can say, no, I'm not leaving. No, I'm not lowering my side. No, I'm not renegotiating again. He has that power. And, and Barcelona has, have very little power in this situation, which is why, you know, like you said, they've resorted to the tactics they've resorted to. I personally, I mean, I like, I love, I like Frankie and I was so excited when he signed and I, I love him as a player and, a, you know, admire him as a person, but I actually hope that he leaves this summer because I do think it's an important step in remolding the squad and reaching the club's goals in terms of, 
this new salary structure and reducing squad costs because his salary is bloated uh, and his, you know, we're still paying his amortization or his amortization is still on the books. So moving him off of the of the payroll. I don't, I don't think we lose a lot sportingly given the strength we have at the interior position, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Gavi and, and Pedri and now Kessie, who's, who's really impressed me and uh, Pablo Torre could come up next and Nico can play there. You know, we have, we have some depth there. So I, I just wish it could happen in a more amicable way, but I, I do hope Frankie ultimately does agree to leave. Although my parting shot is I wouldn't go to Manchester United either. Yeah, well, I would say if we emotionally were able to work through our grief when it came to Messi leaving, I think we'll, as Goulet's handle, Frank and DeYoung, going in, as you said, unsavory circumstances as well. So again, we don't have time to get into the the other transfer business or the exits and all that stuff, but we know know those names. We pretty much know the names of the players that the club doesn't necessarily want. And, you know, I'm reading your notes here. You said it, and you said it throughout the show that the fear of Barcelona registering players is often a fear that happens every window. And due to the money that we already know is coming in for the, because of those, those palancas that are levers, the whole point of that is that they're now going to have a positive salary limit and they're going to be able to register their players. And that's the whole point of that. So Mike, thank you so, so much for coming on. You know, we even were able to, uh, I I didn't say this, but I, I feel like you even were able to market our, uh, that being the Barcelona podcast merch store, because we do, we do actually uh, be able to, uh, we do deliver to Europe. So <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you should buy part of BLM, Dan. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, we don't have enough patrons for that. We need a few more for that, but we're a few more downloads and listen to the podcast. So if you did enjoy this and this was helpful. So this is actually one of those shows where I don't need, if you're still here, of course, I don't even tell you anywhere that we are, but if you enjoyed what you heard, then please share this show. Because again, this took us an hour and 10 minutes plus to get into all the minutiae, to get into all of the understanding of, of what Barcelona is dealing with. And I see on social media uh, over and over and over again, even on YouTube in these five minute or seven minute digestible little segments. If you listen to a whole hour plus on a podcast, that is what it takes to even scratch the surface of the nuanced conversation related to Barca's finances. And I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Again, I could not have done without Mike. So thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. All right. And thank you to the listeners again for sitting with us through this one. The, I promise with Jules Kunde now official, the next one is going to be a lot more fun. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> the next show is going to be 10 times more fun. We're going to do all, maybe it's not going to all be out Jules Kunde. We might talk about the Red Bulls review. Expect that first, and then we'll do Jules Kunde next week. But thanks so much for listening to the Barcelona podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. For the Barca. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.